lost my train of thought. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yes. Welcome everybody to Numbi Number Numbi Number <laughs> Numbi Numbi to Numbi seventy four of mm. the Metabolus Two podcast seventy four can <laughs> barely even believe it yeah. of the Metabolus Two podcast. It's me Ben and the other me David. Okay, and um, we <laughs> the other me, um, and we are doing the uh, five best. Well, number. They're all good, so um, the five, we're picking five uh, cliffhangers from Tom Baker's tenure as the fourth Doctor in Doctor Who, up to and also including season 17. Yeah, we're doing cliffhangers up through season 17. Yes. And then after our break with Sword of Orion, we will continue on with the JNT cliffhangers, the RTD cliffhangers, and... Stephen Moffat cliffhangers. Hold on, um, I will have to just preface. Since we have recently covered part of Tom Baker's earlier tenure as mm. Doctor Who, when we did our Leela examination, I have not done any Leela cliffhangers. Oh, really? So, well, yeah. we'll just you left on the table the big cliffhanger in uh, Towns Wang Chiang, the the unveiling of Magnus Grill. Well, uh, well, a couple of things. One, I talk about I'll, I'll talk about that cliffhanger, the drop of a hat. I've talked about it before. <laughs> I'm going to leave it for another 10, 20, 30 or so podcasts before I talk about it again. All right. So it is an awesome cliffhanger. So if you want to hear Ben talk about it, go look up our podcast for the towns of Wang Chang. Um, and I do actually want to make a correction. I said up to and including season 17. What I meant was up to and not including season 17. Oh, really? Ooh. Well, anyway, okay. I didn't include season 17 either. Because there's nothing, there's, nothing, there's nothing that really grabs me in season 17 either. Hmm. Okay. To be honest. Well, well, one Well, does. we can talk about that. Well, yeah. we can talk about okay. that. Okay, well, you probably... Well, okay. Well, I didn't do, <laughs> I didn't do season 17 either. Well, to be honest with you, I had a very hard time winnowing this down to just five cliffhangers. Oh, because I had this a is, terrifically hard time, yeah. This is, this is an era that I just adore, and this is my first time. <laughs> doesn't adore this era. <laughs> and I started out with a list of 15 potential ones. And, uh, I mean, if we had three hours to talk Doctor Who tonight, I would definitely like to go through all 15. But I will restrain myself and choose only five and maybe six cliffhangers. Well, I, I had five in season 12, basically. Um, uh, yes. You know, so it was like, oh, okay, oh, hell, what am I going to do now? Which is why I kind of decided to, to kind of not to do Leela ones. There is one in season 17 that I could add as an extra. Uh, you know, it's a pretty obvious one, but it's still it's still pretty good. Now, do you think this era in particular, just because of the age that we saw them, was uh, that they are particularly good cliffhangers? Or do you think they are just stonking cliffhangers that are uh, part of this era? No, they are, they are stonking cliffhangers. Apart. So there's a couple of things. One, we were lucky enough to come of age <laughs> during a period of Doctor Who, which is demonstrably... A high point in the series right and i think one of the ways that i think that is demonstrable is that it's really before the series became self-aware um it's and i think before a fandom yeah it's before fandom i think it's before jnt and you know jnt blah 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 did a lot of good things did a lot of bad things but really you know let's and hinchcliffe um, and everyone who was working on the series you know in the 70s as you know producers showrunners etc they were old school, uh, you know, TV guys, and their job was to make a great TV show. Um, mm -hmm. It wasn't to please fans. It wasn't to, like, honor the history of the series. It was right. to, like, get people watching next week. And um, I think it shows. And we see just in season 12 alone with Genesis of the Daleks, there isn't this 
tight coupling, this restraint that we have with the original origin of the Daleks with Genesis of the Daleks. We see that the goal is to put on the best television on Saturday afternoon and not pay fan service or the reason the Daleks are back is the Daleks are popular, not because fans want to see Dalek Daleks. history. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and you know, you could have very easily um actually you could have very easily connected Genesis of the Daleks incredibly directly to the Dead Planet to the original Daleks uh, right. serial uh, simply by painting um, the Daleks that you'd have diff- a different color, but you know they didn't because you know because they were telling a different story. Um, right. They were they were mm-hmm. they were going full Nazi with the Daleks. Mm-hmm. So the Daleks had to be kind of you know Nazi gray, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Doctor Who. Um, the mistake I think fandom, especially in, that started out in the eighties, is is wanting to have a linear continuity of events in Doctor Who that there there aren't parallel time streams everything has to flow and make sense and fit like puzzle pieces into a general overall uh Doctor Who universe rather than this is an interesting story and we can have we could have multiple origin stories of Daleks Cybermen what have you as long as they're good stories they can counter contradict each other because it's a multiverse it's a parallel universes yeah and i think i think you know if 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 any if anyone's been concentrating on us you know for the past 73 episodes God um, help you, us. Uh, um, <laughs> you'll know that and basically i think both of us kind of agree that this is a multiverse right and that there is no real continuity because mm-hmm. it's a show about time traveling and stuff right. changes all the time because it because it does yeah yep um so so one other thing yeah. I want to touch on on cliffhangers yeah. before we go in to begin with is one of the knocks against the Hinchcliffe Holmes era is the concluding part of stories, part four or part six, often were weaker episodes than the three or five episodes leading up to that final episode. And I think that has to do with the fact that we don't have to end on a cliffhanger in that final episode, we're just trying to come up with a resolution and there's enough of a draw with a new serial starting that next Saturday. That alone is enough to get people to tune in. We don't need to hook them so they find out what happens next because they know what happens next. We're going to get a start of a new adventure. That's true. But no, I think I think you can say that of the last 10 minutes of like, you know, Stephen Moffat. 45 minutes you know it's it's mm-hmm. always hard to stick the landing on these kind of shows because you know you build up a crisis you build up an enemy you build up a, a story to such an extent that it's hard to kind of resolve it without resorting to just waving your hands and saying it's resolved now uh, right. i would say that with these these part fours or part sixes are generally pretty good actually I find them a lot more satisfying than, you know, again, the last 10 minutes of, 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 of a lot of contemporary Who, because I think that there is actually more time to wind things up in a more careful and considered manner. And, you know, I would be hard-pressed to... F- I mean, I think the, probably the most famous balls up in terms of finishing a story would have to be the, the fourth part of Hand of Fear, which is like, what? <laughs> oh, okay. That's done now. Um, right. You know, having started out just like kind of balls to the wall, fantastic. Mm-hmm. It just ends up as being like, oh, no, 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 he's dead. Fine, good. All right, let's, um, let's get rid of Sarah. But, of course, right. it has an amazing cliffhanger at the end of part four because the cliffhanger is we don't have Sarah anymore. So, right. you know. And that's enough to get you to tune in next week to see what happens. See, like, well, what, what, you know, Sarah's gone. Oh, my God. She's the, was the greatest companion ever. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen next? Well, shall we get into it? Do you want to give your first cliffhanger? Yes. So I, I tried to pick the ones that made the greatest impression on me when I was watching these as a kid. Likewise. Um, yep. um, I have actually taken out a couple mainly because, uh, well, there was a couple that I took out because, um, they were too similar to each other. In fact, then I took out two that were too similar to each other. <laughs> and I've also tried to take out ones that I've talked about before as being awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's just kick off with the end of Ark in Space, the cliffhanger between Ark in Space Part 2 and Ark in Space Part 3, when okay. the eponymous Noah is turning into Wirren. Yep. And his bubble-wrapped hand, all sprayed green <laughs> and stuff, is waving around and he's yeah he's he's being taken over by an alien force by an alien 
uh, infection, an alien DNA that is rewriting his own DNA to turn him into a giant insect from beyond Andromeda. Um, right. And it's just really... It's pretty frightening. I mean, the, from what I understand, some of this was actually cut by Hinchcliffe because the acting job uh, done by the actor who plays Noah, who's, of course, I'm not going to be able to remember right now, did a really good job at selling this as just a horrible, terrible, horrible, terrible, terrible, horrible thing to happen to someone. And that's why it's a great cliffhanger. Yeah, and I think, is it, is it Kenton Moore? I'm going to click on the link here. Okay. Uh, it is Kenton Moore, yes. <laughs> Kent, well remembered, my friend. Okay. Just his disgust and self-loathing at that point, it's horrific. And he's looking at, and I think the story gets a bad rap <laughs> from the bubble wrap. Well, the, uh, but it I, doesn't look like bubble wrap unless you're like, no, it's bubble wrap. When I was a kid... It wasn't bubble wrap. Uh, they hadn't really invented bubble wrap, wrap at that point. It was like a <laughs> really common, new yeah. material. I had literally mm-hmm. never seen that stuff before. Right. Uh, and as far as I was concerned, it was like what you look like when you were turning into a Wirren. Yeah. It's, the, it's, uh, the, uh, the, uh, I, think, I think the other thing about the, the uh, Kenton Moore, and now I know his name, Kenton Moore's <laughs> performance as Noah, he's a really tightly wound character. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the first three episodes, you know, he's, you know, he's really uptight and tightly wound and careful and completely anal and controlling and Mm -hmm. you know very very well turned out to see him basically kind of fall apart both metaphorically mentally Mm -hmm. and also physically um is really disturbing if he'd been Mm -hmm. more of a messy character and less of a control character it might have been less disturbing but to see to someone who's basically you know something like your worst school teacher (laughs) you know suddenly not suddenly but you know gradually and then at this point leap out as someone who's kind of literally turning into a giant insect really very disturbing Mm -hmm. disturbed me at the time i think all three cliffhangers in this are good right like the first one in episode one after the doctor and harry lose sarah she vanishes somewhere and they're wandering around the Nerva arc, the doctor does his whole homo sapiens indomitable speech, and then they discover that Sarah is one of the cryogenically frozen sleepers. Yeah. And then the, just the setup with Harry's looking for a way to revive Sarah, and then he opens up a cabinet, and we get a monster reveal with the Wirren looming out at Harry. That's the classic monster reveal cliffhanger. And then the cliffhanger that you just mentioned at the end of episode two, episode two, and then the third cliffhanger, if that transformation that started at, during episode two, part two that we're seeing, it's it's almost fully finished because yeah. the, the final scene that we see is the doctor watching Kenton Moore's face basically dissolve into the Weirin face. And we go directly to cliffhanger there. And the Weirin, Weirin's already in the wasp form and yeah. in the solar stack. So we see it's the progression of that monster in the form of cliffhangers in the serial of Ark and Space. I mean, just to, just, to, just to rewind for a second, just to go back to part one, because you, you, mm-hmm. know, you described what is a very interesting, I think, sequence of events in the, in the show where you know, there's this famous speech about you know, right. indomitable humans, blah, blah, blah. You know, Russell T. Davies referenced this as like, you know, the kind of mission statement of Doctor Who, etc., etc., Right. I think what's extraordinary is that you had this really kind of inspirational and kind of cool speech, but immediately you go from, I don't know, that kind of, ah, what's the word, aspirational or kind of, you know, transfigurational kind of sci-fi speech to one, the person that we love most in the show is in terrible danger. She is, right. She's being, she's in some way a part of this group of what appears to be, I don't know, they could even be corpses um, in suspended well, animation. Very certainly, yes, very in, certainly in suspe- they are. In suspended animation. And then when they're trying to revive her, a monster falls out of a cupboard. Right. So, you know, it's, right. it's like, it's like, um, it's not actually the, so the, you know, the kind of sublime nature of the Doctor's speech is almost immediately completely undercut by the mm-hmm. peril and the horror that is actually what Doctor Who does best. So it's, 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 mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting because to me that speech is really kind of completely undercut, mm-hmm. absolutely deliberately in a really kind of interesting and intelligent way by the actual action of the story. And Moffat in A World Enough in Time takes it to the next level. In Arkham Space Part 1, we've lost Sarah. And when the doctor discovers Sarah cryogenically sleeping, once Harry opens up that bed door 
um, he's just going, oh, Sarah, Sarah. And you, you could almost hear the you know future David Tennant going, I'm so sorry. I'm right. just so, so sorry. Right. But then in a world enough in time, it's, it's that loss of a companion got in trouble under the doctor's watch. And it's devastating to the doctor. And he feels terribly awful when it happens. And we're obviously able to save Sarah. But Capaldi's performance is, is in some ways reminiscent of that brief moment of Tom Baker in Ark in Space there where he's realizing that he lost Bill. Yeah. And sort of like Tom Baker's doctor, the fourth doctor, lost Sarah. And, you know, he's going, even if they have a resuscitation unit, there's nothing they can do about it. But, yeah. uh, you know, you know you, so it's you, a sense of loss. Exactly. And you toggle from the doctor being all pompous and speechifying mm-hmm. to actually kind of, you know, realism, which is like, right. I've lost a companion and there's monsters about. Um, right. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. And again, you know, this is just the second serial in, right. in, in right. season 12. You know, This is Hinchcliffe's uh, first one under his full production credit. Yeah, exactly. Well, we've spent a lot of time talking about this. Um, <laughs> how about your first one? My first one is one of my all-time favorite cliffhangers in all of Doctor Who, and that is the end of part one of Terror of the Zygons. Oh, yes. And I'll just set the scene here a little bit. So Harry Sullivan's been shot on the beach by a Scottish man named the Caber. Like a Bond henchman. Yeah, very much so. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Named after the Highland Games. Exactly. Or or the Caber Toss. Yeah. But uh, so he's a big, big hulking Scotsman who we don't know at the time, but we do learn later that is a Zygon. So Harry is recuperating in the hospital, and Sarah is visiting him in, like, the, I think it's the Hibernian Oil Company sick bay, and accompanied by uh, Sister Lamont, who we don't Ooh. know anything about it, who's a very uh, creepy, uh, very creepy Scottish nurse. She's all Dr. Finley kind of Scotsman. <laughs> yeah. And Sarah goes out in the hallway to use the phone where before cell phones, obviously, this is our early 1970s, to call the doctor and give him a status report. Meanwhile, we cut back to Sister Lamont going, don't worry, Dr. Sullivan, your worries are all over now. You're going to be very well looked after. And it's, she's just, it's very ominous and sinister what she says. We cut back to the doctor on the other end of the phone relaying the information that Sarah's giving him. And Sarah's saying, Harry started to speak. Uh, I think there's something he wants to tell us. And then we cut back to the scene with Harry in his hospital bed. And he looks up and he starts going, no, no, no. We cut back to the doctor saying, no, no, I'll be right over. Cut to Sarah and we see an orange suckery hand reaching towards her back. She turns around, gasps at the first full sight of a Zygon. She screams, the camera zooms into the Zygon's open sucker mouth, and then we go into that crash theme that we began with the Pertwee era. That right, yeah, that and scream. That, yeah, or integrating that scream is so vital into the good Doctor Who cliffhangers of that early '70s, from Pertwee into the Tom Baker years. It's just really part of it, and that I think captures the whole reason why you have monsters in Doctor Who and why you reveal them right at the end of the first episode. And it just really, it really <laughs> hooks you in. I mean, the whole, the whole ominous, the Jeffrey Burgoyne soundtrack, the creepiness, the, the Scottish setting, all really combined to facilitate that final cliffhanger with the sucker monster, the sucker hand coming out sucker arm coming out and tapping sarah on the back she spins around and screams and it's just very very well directed very well uh put together and it's just a great cliffhanger you know douglas camfield did a great job with this it's fantastic and i mean the thing is the zygons are kind of uniquely disgusting looking Mm -hmm. and they're a lot more creepy and a lot more disgusting i think in their original appearance in Terror of the Zygons, and they unfortunately than they were in the new series. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not entirely well. I, I guess I kind of know why a little bit, but um, we won't get into that now. But yeah, it, it's it is just it's just you we you we've never we haven't seen them before. And again, this is the way that TV used to work: is we literally we had not seen them um, right. because there was no way to see them. There wasn't a way that you would be able to see them before they are revealed to you on the television and they are horrible looking 
Right. And they are real. They're real monsters. Right. They're monstrously horrible. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. just. They're kind of disgusting yet cool to look at. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Exactly. And you know, we we know there's something wrong with Sister mm-hmm. Lamotte, Nurse Lamotte, uh. whatever she's called, because you know, Lamont. She, Lamont. Because you know, she is, she is kind of you know, she's like a creepy Scottish nurse. And again, you know, and our heroes are in danger. Um, mm-hmm. And know. kind of oblivious that they are in danger. I mean, she, Harry's been shot, but they don't know. They don't know why. They don't know yet. It's aliens that are at cause. No, as far as we know, I mean, you know, the caber. I said, you know, he's a Bond henchman. Um, his job mm-hmm. is probably shooting people. So, and he probably would have shot Harry even if he hadn't been a Zygon. He um, was trespassing on uh, Duke exactly. of Forgill's land. The yeah. Duke of Forgill <laughs> on his land. Um, and um, yeah, and you know, ha- you know, Harry is frightened. Sarah's right, obviously right. frightened. You know, and Harry is supposed to be the one who isn't that frightened. Right. Um, you know, he's the he's the he's the principal man, he's principal boy, or whatever the technical right. term is. So yeah, no, it's 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 a good one. It's an absolute classic, and it's mm-hmm. and again the integration of the just the direction from Camfield, the costume mm-hmm. design and the creature design and the acting and the music, absolutely perfect textbook cliffhanger. Yep, textbook. I would I would agree. That's why it's one of my favorite cliffhangers of all of Doctor Who. And you have excellent taste in Doctor <laughs> Who cliffhangers. <laughs> well, thank I have you. To say yes. And your second one. So my second one, uh, we're just going to rewind uh, very slightly here to Genesis of the Daleks. Um, okay. I originally, so, okay, so I, I originally I'd gone with the end of part two, which is one yep. of my absolute... Sarah falling off the scaffolding. Because so, yep. she's, she's totally falling off the scaffolding. Like, <laughs> what is going to happen? What right. you discover is she's only a little bit falling off the scaffolding, <laughs> um, so all is well. Right. Uh, um, and I won't tell you the other one where someone falls off a thing and then it's all all right in the end. But that was the other one I was going to pick. But I didn't pick that one. So, but I still had to go with Genesis. And I went with an absolute, again, classic end of episode five. Um, ah, yes. The, the Doctor has, you know, he's ummed and odd about like, uh, you know, am I going to kill the Daleks or am I not going to kill the Daleks? Uh, do I have the right? Blah, blah, blah. He's finally like stopped all that nonsense. Like, okay, I'm going to kill him now. Um, and we're not going to, you know, we're not going to be all like wishy-washy and liberal about it. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to kill them completely, blah, blah, blah. And then he comes out and they're killing him. They're like, oh, yes. you know, the, um, the thing is, is actually at that point, you know, because, um, you know, obviously I hadn't seen the original Daleks. Mm-hmm. And the the only and the only really the only way I'd encounter the Daleks really is, is in death to, is in death to the Daleks. Well, death to Daleks and planet of the Daleks as well. But I was not really fully aware that a there was an animal or there was a creature inside a Dalek, mm-hmm. and b I kind of wasn't aware that what was in inside a Dalek was so m- mutatable and horrible as was presented in Genesis of the Daleks. But mm-hmm. the sound that the oh, creature makes, that kind of high whining sound, which is like... It's kind of like rats in the wall, but alien. <laughs> it's like, it's not a monster sound. It's not a sound you've ever heard before. It's mm-hmm. kind of a high kind of whining, keening, kind of horrible sound. And then it's got a, like a tentacle. Um, and it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's uh, the doctor, you know, and, and I, I'm sure it was a difficult acting job for... Um, for Tom, because it's hard to like, you know, I'm being strangled by a tentacle, and what you have to do is like actually make the tent- tentacle <laughs> strangle you. You know, um, it's like right. it's like poor old um, uh, poor old what's his name from Only Fools and Horses pretending to be killed by plants in um, the Seeds of Doom. Um, but oh, you know, Scorby, Scorby, uh, yes, Boise. oh no, Boise, ah, oh, the plants are getting me now. Oh, I've got to pull them over my head. Um, so it makes look they're killing me anyway. But he does a really good job, and it's really frightening. And the doctor's in trouble. The doctor mm-hmm. is in trouble. He went in. You know, we decided he was going to do what he should do, which is kill the well, Daleks. Just and, a, just a point know. of order, though. He hasn't decided yet. He's he hasn't given a speech. That's because that's a, right at the beginning of part six. Oh, I thought he had given the speech. By no, then. so uh, he he's uh. setting himself up, and then when it finally comes to it, that's at the very beginning of part six, where he. Where he does that, the famous "Do I have the right speech?" Oh, okay, all right, okay, all so, right. I, sorry, sorry. I, I, I stand corrected. That's me, uh, kind of. That's that's me relying on my ten-year-old memories, mm-hmm. um, and that would be forty-year-old memories rather than actually going 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 to the source material. <laughs> I'm just trying to get us right on the pub quiz here. Of course. Anyway, it's a it's a great scene. The car, it I, is. You know, colored it is. Mutants, they're horrible. Ugh. 
It is a wonderful scene, and Sarah just sells it beautifully. Harry's busy trying to splice the wires into the ignition box or anything, and, and Sarah's watching the door, asking Harry, why is it taking so long? And and, and then she calls that doctor, doctor, are you all, are you all right? And she kind of licks her lips. And then the doctor bursts from that collidolic incubator room with this big rubbery tentacle monster around his neck. And he's going, Sarah, help. And <laughs> we go right into the credits. So it's a, it's a, it's a nice one. You know, it, the good cliffhangers are when our heroes are in peril. And what can be more perilous than being strangled by a proto-Dalek, a collared mutant? And of course, you know, the, the beginning of the next episode, the tentacle is easily defeated. Of course. And, you know, our heroes are back on track. Um, but right. that's, you know, that's the point of the cliffhanger. It's like, mm-hmm. it's you know, if it wasn't possible to resolve it quickly, then <laughs> that would, you know, if the Doctor actually gets strangled to death by, mm-hmm. by a mutant tentacle, then, you know, it's the end of the show. And what we found in with Terry Nation when we were talking about Hartnell is Terry Nation does really good cliffhangers that make you want to tune in the following week, but week. they're easily disposed of cliffhangers, I mean, within minutes yeah. of that opening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you go. That's my um, that's my number two. Um, okay, excellent. How yep. about you? Uh, my second one is Pyramid Mars, episode three, the end of part three, with a Sutex Green psionic attack on the Doctor. Well, I avoided Pyramids of Mars because, <laughs> okay. like, it's just so good. So, uh, all right. Well, let me uh, recount the scene here, if that's all right. <laughs> no, please do. Please do. Okay, so the doctor has placed the explosive on the uh, Osiren war missile that's in the courtyard of Mick Jagger's house there. <laughs> and it uh, and Sutek is blocking the explosion from erupting after Sarah shoots it. So the doctor says the only thing he can do is now travel to Mars. So he enters the time corridor. Meanwhile, Scarman, the zombie Scarman, controlled by Sutek, orders a service robot mumming to remove the explosive from the ramp of the rocket. The doctor arrives on Mars and he makes his way through the chamber where Sutek is imprisoned. And then he whispers, Sutek, last of the Osirens. And Sutek's concentration lapses. Basically says boo is what he says. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but quietly. <laughs> and then... Uh, Sutek goes, oh! And then, yes. So I'm sorry, interrupting. (laughs) No, that's all right. So the rocket ignites in the flames, and Sutek stares at it. And it seems like minutes that he's just looking at his monitor, at his rocket up in flames. And then his eyes light up glowing green. He turns slowly to the doctor, and then he gives him the psionic blast from his eyes. And the doctor is bathed in green light, cries out in pain, shakes his head nose, slumps to the ground. And then we return back to Sutek's glowing green eyes and you know get that and get the credits and i think again the doctor is in peril just like what we saw with the terry nation story here we have bob holmes doing the end of part three the doctor is in peril and it makes such a great cliffhanger you want to know what happens how is the doctor going to get out of this one and this one isn't the all of episode or most of the first part of episode four is the resolution as how the doctor's getting out of this cliffhanger. Because they've really built up Sutek into a, a pretty impressive and hard to defeat force at this point. Um, and you and really he, are. And he is hard to defeat. Yeah, I mean, and again, you know, this is not a quickly resolved cliffhanger, as you say. The doctor mm-hmm. is still in deep trouble, like well into episode four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the, the cliffhanger I was, which is you know, literally, I think my, probably my most favorite cliffhanger of all is actually the uh, cliffhanger at the end of part one, um, where uh, uh-huh. where Sutek brings the gift of death to all mankind. <laughs> yes, and, uh, and he's like flaming. Why? Well, to my young mind, they were flaming hands. They're actually just smoking <laughs> hands. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I mean every. It, all of basically pyramids of mars is just a series of awesome cliffhangers like strung together with some plot it's just amazing yeah it's a small cast it's very tightly contained but it really really captures what the hinchcliffe holmes era is about doctor who yep the the pastiche or the retelling of hammer horror with a sci-fi twist is done so excellently here with Bob Holmes' script, the direction, and the, the acting. 
And also that, you know, nobody survives. I mean, this mm-hmm. is this kind of, you know, thing that's picked up in the new series where like, oh, no, everyone's got to live this time. Right. You know, this is like, I think, the, you know, the classic example of, of 70s Doctor Who, where basically everyone dies. And not only does everyone die, everyone dies in the most horrible way possible. Yeah. And Patty Russell, who's the director of this, yep. just really handled her predominantly male cast just really got good performances out of them. And, you know, Tom has gone on the record saying now he's really chafed at her direction, but he responds so well under this. And then we'll see later with the Leela story, which she directed a horror of Fang Rock, the same sort of response. I think Tom does really well when a director like Russell gives firm direction and yep. doesn't let him go off in the weeds or do you get too comedic because you could see you could see if uh, this was a season 17 story how it could be taking the mickey out of it it could Absolutely. just be really it could be a you know it could be a send-up carry on egypt or something yeah <laughs> something yeah well i mean i think with russell it's almost like margaret thatcher basically you know if you get to be prime minister in a kind of completely not not only kind of male dominated government but like a male dominated political society as a woman you will mm-hmm. probably be an incredibly tough and hard to counter prime minister and i think it's the same right. thing with with patty russell you know if you get to be a director at the bbc at that right. time and you're a woman you're going to be a pretty tough mm-hmm. director and you're not going to take any crap from anybody least of mm-hmm. all a kind of you know a dilettante playboy you know, <laughs> uh, soho soho house haunting man like tom baker proto stephen toast exactly proto <laughs> Uh, um, exactly um so yeah no it's it's uh, congratulations um as i said the pyramids of mars is just all amazing cliffhangers and thank Um, you for leaving and you know they 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 they, they could have cut it at any point to like go to the next episode and it would they would still Mm -hmm. be cliffhangers yeah it builds very tense 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 story tense stuff yeah okay so my number three yep is uh, we're going to, we're going forward here. Uh, no, we're not. We are going backwards. I beg your pardon. Um, we're going backwards to Planet of Evil. Uh-huh. And originally I was going to go with um, uh, 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 when, oh, uh, wait a second. Where are my notes here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't go from your 10-year-old <laughs> memory as a 10-year-old. <laughs> no, exactly. Here you go. Originally I was going to go when Doctor falls into the evil black the evil black pool, um, which is oh, then the freeze frame, which yeah. is then when I cut that one out. And then I also cut out the Sarah falls <laughs> off the gantry as well, because that's also a freeze frame. I mean, it absolutely killed me at the time when the doctor f- fell into that pool, because we know when you come out of that pool, you're a skeleton. Mm-hmm. So like the doctor is like he's and, the, and I couldn't see a way. Um, certainly as a child, that the doctor would mm-hmm. be able to survive that because it's, it's you know, you fall in that pool, you're dead. And of course, we know that actually, if you're a time lord, you fall into the pool and you get all floaty and you can float towards right. the monster and blah, blah, blah. And it's all fine. I didn't go with that one in the end. What I did go with from Planet of Evil is the end of part three. Ooh. Ooh. Where, and I think I've actually said this before, so I've slightly broken my rules. The thing I like about the Merestrian ship mm-hmm. is that um, it has an incredibly complex and... well-worked-out way of ejecting corpses from itself. (laughs) Almost as if they had planned to put some visitors in extreme peril by sort of trying to eject them from itself um, from the very beginning. I mean, I guess it's kind of, you know, it's probably like a garbage disposal or something, and they they eject other things Mm -hmm. out through those creepy-looking trays, Mm -hmm. um, but they are best for ejecting bodies, basically. And we've already seen one body being ejected, um, so we know what happens. Our heroes are placed in the body ejecting trays in the Merestrian ship. A button is pressed and they slide out to be ejected. Yep. Cue end of episode. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen? How are they not going to be ejected from the ship? They're dead. So and that's and that's again, that's my 10 year old brain just kind of completely freaking mm-hmm. out there. Well, it's certainly not uh, Star Trek Wrath of Khan where they have used the photon missile shoots to eject corpses and eventually Spock out into space. So it's That's it. they aren't the weapon loading bay or lo- the weapon, the torpedo tubes. 
No, it's a specially designed corpse ejecting device, <laughs> which of course all Morestrian ships are equipped with, just in case you just in case you want to eject some corpses. I think they're probably only standard on ships captained by Prentice Hancock, to be honest. So if you... Exactly when when the, when the corpses begin to pile up halfway through the halfway through the mission, you've got to start ejecting them. Mm-hmm. It's a great again, you know, it's kind of a cheat because when you go into the next episode, they actually haven't ejected quite as far as you think they have. And you know a switch is pulled, mm-hmm. and they go, they come sliding back in again. But again, you know, I was at, I was at my wits' end throughout the entire um, serial of, of Planet of Evil, um, because, mainly because I was, and I think I probably said mainly because I was a huge fan of Forbidden Planet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fifties, the fifties movie, right. which you know the antimatter monster basically looks like. And to me, it was like, wow, they've taken Forbidden Planet, which was an incredibly cool movie that right. I really, really liked, and they basically done it as Doctor Who and they basically made it really scary mm-hmm. um, which is you know for Forbidden Planet is, it's ominous it's not really that scary mm-hmm. um, I love all the cliffhangers in, uh, in Planet of Evil but this I think is my favorite yeah excellent yeah it's a good serial it comes right after Zygons and it holds together pretty well oh it does and that, that, that great jungle set oh which is amazing really convincing. Yep. 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 And, um, you know, the Morestrians are kind of, you know, suitably incompetent as, you know, military people. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the monster frightening, yeah. you know, when, 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 um, when the antimatter monsters really kind of kick off. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's great. No, it's, it's a good one. The director is David Maloney. And I think the direction, again, really helps sell whether a cliffhanger works or not. And here in this third episode, there's a struggle over that lever. And the lever gets tripped. And um, I think earlier we see the ejection chamber being used. So yeah. they've set up the Chekhov's corpse ejection system. It's, it's, it's Chekhov's. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But at that moment in time, you don't remember how slow that conveyor belt or whatever goes. Yeah. You realize in the return in part four that they have a little bit of time to throw the switch the other way. But... They're definitely, you know, moving towards the cold, cold blackness of space. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the drawer of a filing cabinet. <laughs> um, obviously a thing that doesn't really exist anymore, but, you know, and it slowly is pushing them out into space. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, 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 and it's all kind of silvery and metal and clinical. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and they're in real trouble. Yep. Only they're not. <laughs> uh, what, and you're number three. Uh, end of part three of The Seeds of Doom. Well, I am going to say snap okay, on that. Okay, so let's. Okay. That gives us a bonus one. I have a bonus <laughs> lined up. All Don't right. Worry. So I will uh, recount the scene the best I can can recall here. Sarah has just been captured. The doctor had lowered her out of the wall, and she's supposed to go seeking help from the uh, World Ecology Bureau. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, the guards drag her to Scorby. Uh, Boise and, uh, out of Only Fools and Horses. Yeah, and Scorby grabs Sarah by the chin and says, Mr. Chase is not going to be very pleased with you, and then escorts her into the house at gunpoint. Uh, and meanwhile, the doctor was trying to circle back to the house and figure out what's going on. He has made it to the roof and is looking down through the skylight where Keeler and Chase are discussing the pod. Sarah is shoved into the room, followed in by Scorby. Harrison Chase demands what's going on. Uh, Scorby says, well, he escaped, and the doctor's at large, but he won't be for long. And Chase goes, where's the doctor? Scorby pulls a gun and is right up against uh, Sarah's head. And Sarah, you know, very bravely says, I don't know, and I wouldn't tell you even if I did. Chase goes, you're a very, very uncooperative young lady. However, I've just had a brilliant idea. You can help me with my experiments. And then he orders Scorby to rip off her coat. He grabs Sarah's arm, pulls her over to the table where the crinoid is, holds it down and says, get me some clamps. And he goes, I must know what happens when the crinoid touches human flesh. The pod starts cracking open and then we go into credits. So Sarah's in deathly, deathly peril there. Yeah, and it's it's a uniquely, not uniquely actually, because... It's, this is kind of what the show does run. It's a really kind of horribly sadistic scene. Um, oh, they're all, very they're, sadistic. They're kind of ganging up on Sarah, which is horrible mm-hmm. of them. And they're going to. T- and we already know what happens mm-hmm. when a pod breaks and uh, a crinoid spore or whatever it is tentacle comes out. Um, you get turned into a horrible crinoid creature, um, right. or, or some people like to call it an axon sprayed green. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, it's, again, 
you cannot see you cannot see the way out for our hero at this right. point. Um, Sarah mm-hmm. is in deep trouble. She's being ganged up on by everybody. Um, mm-hmm. Harrison Chase is, you know, he's definitely not a very nice person. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, Sarah is going to end up being turned into a crinoid as far as we can see. And the doctor, he he is a spectator. He's above, looking through a skylight. You know, yep. it's, he he can't reach downstairs, run run downstairs in time because the crinoid is about to go. Exactly. So with we're left with like we have to tune in next week mm-hmm. to find out what the hell is going to happen. You know, if this was a a world enough in time, Sarah would have been turned into a crinoid. So. Exactly, and we'd be like, oh no, she's turned into a crinoid. Um, and then we'd have to be all sad for a bit. Anyway, but yeah, but this is proper Doctor Who. Um, so she doesn't get turned into a crinoid. She's so rescued is, in time. She's rescued in time, yes. Absolutely. Which we see immediately at the start of part four with the classic line where, uh, Doctor, whatever you do next, and he goes, I win. You know, it's very it's very Avengers. It's very it is Bondian, very Avengers, yep, yep. But it, it is a, a special part of Doctor Who history, and uh, it's been said many times before that Doctor Who is a genre machine, and here we are doing this uh, sci-fi uh, Avenger-like thriller. Yeah, and of course, you know, poor old Keela, um, he's the one who ends up being turned into a crinoid, and that doesn't end up well for him at nope. all. Nope. Um, nope. Being fed meat in a darkened bedroom by a butler. <laughs> um, yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. Yeah, and we think, like, oh, that could have been Sarah. So it's made even more horrible. So, mm-hmm. oh, goodness. So, uh, so, so, so we've had a snap on that one. Yep, Who's going to we... go next? Oh, well, I will go for a story a little bit earlier, if that would be okay. Please. Um, a Terry Nation story. Mm-hmm. Part two of the Android Invasion. Oh, Android Duplicate Reveal. Mm-hmm. Uh. So the doctor has escaped and he's walking out with Sarah and uh, he senses something isn't up. The TARDIS is missing. And then the doctor says, these trees aren't real and you're not the real Sarah. And then all of a sudden, Sarah Jane has a gun pulled on the doctor. Yes. And the doctor explains, you see, I knew all the time the real Sarah wasn't wearing her scarf because I have it right here. He pulls out the real scarf out of the pocket. And then with his uh, swashbuckling move, he uses a scarf to knock the gun out of Sarah's hand. He grabs right, right. Android Sarah by the shoulders and saying, where's the real Sarah? What have you done with Sarah? Android Sarah breaks away. She falls down. Her face falls off, and we reveal the android face of uh, Sarah. And, and it's, uh, it's it's very freaky, and it's not a favorite story because of many aspects. But that is such a reveal that our beloved Sarah is an android. It's just horrible. And again, it's one of these android invasions. Is, is you know has a lot of great setups, but it really kind of falls apart towards the end. They can't really resolve all mm-hmm. the setups yeah, that they've yeah. um, that they've been working on. I think mm-hmm. it really suffers from from you know, not having the right unit sort of involved. Mm-hmm. Just as Seeds of Doom, I think, also suffers by not having the right unit. Right. Uh, but yeah, no, this is this is amazing cliffhanger because you mm-hmm. know it's like, well, where is Sarah then? Right. If that's not Sarah, where's the real one? And like. What is this android doing? Mm-hmm. The doctor just doesn't even know where Sarah is. So how can he even rescue her if he doesn't know that or where she is? Yeah, exactly, exactly. You don't know what's going to happen next because it's the team of the doctor and Sarah that gets us out of the jams, and now they're split up. Yeah, it's a and good he's one. It's a good stranded one. without the TARDIS. And again, it's very well directed. Um, I'm not going to be able to tell you who directed it, but anyway, it is well directed. You know, I mean, a face falling off to reveal an android duplicate is, um, you know, it's a hard trick to pull off directorial-wise because mm-hmm. you've got a lot of moving parts, you've got real actors, you've got models, you've got effects, you've got a, something has to fall off, which is mm-hmm. very hard to do deliberately, but mm-hmm. completely seamless and very, very convincing. And that is why director Barry Letts was <laughs> producer for the first uh, four years of the 70s because he, as we saw in Enemy of the World and other serials, the man can direct. It's Barry Letts, of course. Yep, yep. Well, he's a he's a star in many ways, Mr. <laughs> Letts, or was Mr. Letts because he's no longer with us. Mm, sadly, yes. Sadly, yeah. So, another cliffhanger. Another cliffhanger. Okay, we're going to go on a bit forward here into the history of Doctor Who, and we are going to go to Deadly Assassin. And it's not the one you think. Oh. It's the other one. It's the end of part two. The Doctor is in the Matrix. 
And I think I've said before, The Matrix really worked for me very well because mm-hmm. it was exactly the kind of countryside um, where I used to play with my friends, a kind of sandy jungle. And there was railway tracks yep. um, where we used to play and we were all very warned, don't go near the railway, or you, otherwise you will get run over by a train. We, of course, being good children, we were very frightened of the railway and we did not go near the railway and we did not get run over by a train. The doctor was not as sensible as us um, and his foot is caught in some train tracks as the points change. Mm-hmm. Um, his foot is caught, he cannot get it out, and blimey, here comes the train. Mm-hmm. End of episode. Yep. His foot's caught in a train track. There's a yep. train coming. Yep. What's going to happen? He's going to get run over by a train. Again, I, as a kid, I could not see how he would get out of this mm-hmm. at all. He'll get, he gets out of it by just, like getting his foot out, basically. But still, at that point... Does um, he... I, I can't... I said, I, my memory is cheating here. Does he get his foot out or does the train go over it and he doesn't have an impact? Oh, and then yeah. he realizes no, that... It's a, it, it's a ghost train. Right. Yeah, it's a pretend matrix mm-hmm. train. Exactly. Well, That's true. But anyway, yeah, but, but then still, yes, he does awesome. get his foot out right after that. But we still we see when the train goes by, we do see it kind of jerk up where it would be over the doctor's yeah, leg. Yeah. I mean, the train itself. Again, rewatching it, the train itself is not nearly as impressive as certainly as mm-hmm. I remember it being. Um, I'm, I'm all. It's a little small. It, I'm kind of vague, <laughs> vaguely disappointed. Yeah. Well, that was my takeaway at the time of watching it. And I saw this more as a, a, a 13, 14-year-old, that the well, train was, was not impressive when, at all. Well, when I saw it as an 11-year-old, as far as I'm concerned, that was the same kind of intercity 125 <laughs> um, that was like threatened to kill me every time I went near the train tracks. I, mm-hmm. Again, I could not see any way that the Doctor would be able to not be completely splattered as I always imagined a train would be if you happen to find yourself on the track. So interesting that you chose end of part two rather than the classic end of part three. So what, what, what why? I, I think I, end of part three, it's just too obvious. I just wanted to go with a different one from Deadly Assassin, which has got excellent, excellent. I mean, all three cliffhangers are superb. You know, the Doctor is an assassin. The Doctor gets his foot in a court in a right. train track. The Doctor appears to be drowned. Mm-hmm. Those are just absolutely stonking cliffhangers all the way through that, through that sort, through that right. story. Um, obviously, you know the the doctor being drowned is complete classic cliffhanger. But I just wanted to go with another one instead, and one one that really affected me at the time because it really kind of resonated with me mm-hmm. as a child because trains were something that we'd been warned about and we'd been warned to be right. frightened. Okay. Of. Whereas like water and drowning, you kind of already know that you should be mm-hmm. frightened of that because, you know, you're in the bath and like, obviously I can't breathe in this in this mysterious <laughs> liquid that is in my bathtub. Right. Um, but trains, oh yeah, mm-hmm. trains are frightening. Trains are super powerful. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Good choice. Good choice. Good cereal. Okay. Excellent. Right. And then I think you're, do you have a I last I think I have are we, are we... two left, maybe? I don't know. What are, what are we on? Well, I've done all five of mine, okay. but well, then, then we I have must... a snap in the middle. Yeah, so so... I think I think you have one more. Okay, so I it's pretty easy to pick one. So <laughs> yeah, just go ahead and do I it. will honor your uh, Leela since we have talked about the Leela tenure. I'm going to skip over uh, Robots of Death and Talons of Wang Chiang and Horror of Fang Rock, which all have great cliffhangers. Great, great, great cliffhangers, <laughs> and go with part two of the. Androids of Tara. And this is one that really impacted me at the time that I saw it as a teenager because this is a story of mistaken identity throughout where Romana has an android duplicate and a duplicate of the Princess Strella and the Prince Renart has the android George who they had just crowned king of tara grendel immediately thinks something is up and then the archimandrite says uh, let all the nobles swear the oath of fealty to the king and uh the first noble to come in is um the doctor mistaken uh, it to be romana he goes romana and then uh zadek who is one of uh, the princes or now the king's uh entourage says no no that's the princess strella and in a very deadpan voice mary tam delivers as princess strella that she pledges her loyalty to the king and recognizes sovereignty uh, over her and she bows down and then all of a sudden the doctor grabs uh, android king george's scepter shouts no and we just hear this sickening 
thud as he clubs, in my mind, Romana over the yeah. back of the head. Yeah. A gasp goes around the room, and Grendel looks up, and we go into credits. And it's just sickening that, you know, the, here the doc, you know, the doctor isn't sure because we have a lot of mistaken identities. Right. He must have seen something. But do we really know it wasn't Romana? And the thud wasn't a mechanical thud. It really sounded like the doctor just brained Mary Tam. Which would yeah. not have been a good thing. No. It's it's horrific, but it's not horrific in a monster sort of way. It's a horrific in what if the doctor is wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've seen earlier in the Graham Williams era, like at the, you know, I'm going to rope in the end of part three of Horror Fang Rock where the doctor Amits his mistake and he goes, oh, Leela, I've made a terrible mistake. I thought I've locked the enemy out, but instead I've locked him inside. So the doctor, the doctor makes mistakes. And here we are. And we know that people are mistaking androids for people, people for people for time lords, time lords for androids. And what if the doctor had made a mistake? Is there something, was there something other than the deadpan voice that tipped him off? that this was an android Princess Strella and not Romana drugged and forced to do this speech or something like that. Right, right. I mean, interestingly, you've gone with two android-based cliffhangers. Yeah, maybe it's something something about me. <laughs> <laughs> A fear, deadly fear of not actually being real. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. It's a good yep. one. It's, um, it's, I, I don't find the season... Uh, blah, blah, the Skeeter Time season... Have has a season lot of 16, season yeah. sixteen has a lot of quality cliffhangers, but no. that is a very very good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other the other one in that serial that's kind of it's very classic and it's very genre is the end of part one, where <laughs> it's the wine drinking scene where right. after after the doctor gets uh, George the android working and Prince Renart calls for wine. The prince's entourage and the doctor toast and drink their goblets of wine. The doctor drinks one and uh, fills it up because he drinks a little bit early. Sort of like, oh, I wonder if Tom was really acting in that point. And then uh, they all collapse over the table except for uh, the doctor. He looks at his cup and goes, ooh, potent stuff, and staggers to the door, collapses at the feet of Count Grendel. I mean, that's a that's a good cliffhanger for the this uh, Prisoner of Zenda-type drama. Yeah. But it's, it's, I mean, what is it? The guy, the doctor and f- friends drink wine. They are knocked out and the villain's at the door. Eh, it's it's not quite yeah. the same caliber of uh, <laughs> the Zygon tapping you on the back, spinning you, spinning around. <laughs> exactly. Not. I always had a soft spot for um, Stones of Blood Part 3 because it seemed to me to be very convincing that the Doctor and Romana would now be stuck on this spaceship forever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a pretty horrible spaceship. And it's a... So I've, I've always liked that. That was, that was a possible one I was going to do, but I didn't I actually end up doing that one in the end. And since we didn't pick on Season 17 at all, uh, should we uh, discuss the obvious one in uh, City of Death or should we leave that for another day? Uh, the obvious one being Count Scarlione um, revealing well, himself to be a... Um... Scaroth, the last of the Jaggeroth. Indeed. Is that the yeah. one you were thinking? Oh. I was thinking that one or the end of part two. So we're... Uh... Oh, oh so, well, that's well, also a good one. Yeah, well, yeah. so let's talk about them. So the first oh, okay. one... Yeah. No, that, that, the that's... first one is uh, the Countess asks Herman, their butler, where the Count is and Herman says he's in the cellar, and she just bad mouses the professor. You know, sort of like, oh, he's with the professor again. Uh-huh. Herman says, no, <laughs> he's alone. And uh, the countess gets all, you know, ooh, I'll finally get him get him alone at last. And she heads towards the cellar. The cellar door's locked. She's going, Carlos, Carlos. Meanwhile, Julian Glover, or Count Scarleone, is looking into the mirror and he reaches for his face and then pulls it off. And then we get this cyclo- this uh, green cyclops eye staring at us, which is uh, Scaroth, the last of the Jaggeroth. So that's the cliffhanger for part one, the classic monster reveal. It's a classic monster reveal. The end of um, part two, when yes. we, we see that actually, for some incredibly and as yet unexplained reason, Count Scarleone also exists... Mm-hmm. In the Renaissance, Captain Tancredi, yes, in, in the Renaissance at the roughly the time of Leonardo da Vinci, um, mm-hmm. but is also but is now called Captain Tancredi. 
that actually kind of went over my head when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, because oh. Chris, uh, Julian Glover's long hair, mm-hmm. I was too distracted by the fact that he had long hair, uh, Captain Tancredi, and I didn't really fully understand until the following week that that was actually the same person. Okay. Well, it's a, it's a good cliffhanger. And, it's a great um, cliffhanger, though. And then the way Michael Hayes directs it when... Tancredi uh, appears in the doorway. The doctor says, "You, what are you doing here?" And we can't see who the the facial features in it because uh, Julian Glover is entirely darkened by that doorway. And then he steps into the light and says, "Isn't that the question I should be asking you?" Very and true. you know, of course, the doctor's at a disadvantage because he's being held at sword point. But that I think is a classic confrontation between the villain, the arch nemesis, and the doctor. Yep. That provides the tension. And so much of the earlier Philip Hinchcliffe era is someone in peril. And here in you know the mid to late Graham Williams era, the cliffhanger is not so much that that doctor's in peril. Sure, he's in a little bit in danger, but we have just the, – the, the story changes. We've learned something more about Scarleone that he also exists now in a totally different time stream and we don't get that a lot of 1970s Doctor Who of playing with time and here we have for all apparentness a time traveling villain yeah yeah a time traveling villain is the same way that the Doctor is also a time traveler Right. Um, I mean, we, we know that Count Scarleone is is not a Time Lord because we know that he's he is actually a horrible monster underneath right. his, his Julian Glover mask. Um, <laughs> uh, um, but um, that really only made sense to me as a kid, slightly further into the following episode. Right. Um, I can remember being a bit nonplussed by that cliffhanger, saying, "Well, like, well, who is it?" Mm-hmm. I think probably because it actually cuts too quickly. To the credits. Uh, if they'd held it slightly longer, um, my kid brain would have been able to go, oh yeah, that's the uh, Count guy who's actually a monster. Mm-hmm. But I only really kind of fully clocked that um, at the beginning of the next episode. Okay. Yeah. So, didn't didn't quite Fact work fans. then on the uh, 10-year-old, 11-year-old uh, viewer. It didn't, but it certainly works incredibly well on the on the adult, mm-hmm. the adult viewer, yes. Yeah. Right, so Goodness. I think we did did due diligence here to the early Tom Baker era. An era of really very good cliffhangers. Indeed, indeed. Um, For next week, we will be back to discuss the Eighth Doctor. We're going to be taking a little break from our cliffhangers here, and we are going to discuss the Eighth Doctor, his second big finish audio adventure, Sword of Orion. Sword of Orion, dun-dun-dun, which, spoiler alert, may have Cybermen in it. (laughs) <laughs> which you'll which you'll be able to see. Um, encourage everyone to purchase from Big Finish if you haven't already and download. It's uh since it's a older title, a it is um, probably around two ninety nine. Very reasonably dollar, priced. Dollars or pounds. So. Very reasonably priced. So please go to Big Big Finish's website and download it. And uh, listen in, and then listen to uh, Ben and I uh, discuss our reactions to it. Absolutely. So. Well, good. I'm going to take a little, a little bit, a, a little break while I do some traveling, um, but we will be back with you soon. Yes. All right. Well, thank you for listening to episode 74 of the Metabulous 2 podcast. I have been talking, as always, to Ben. And I, as always, have been talking to David. And thanks for listening. Good night. Goodbye. <laughs>
next time on the Metabulous 2 Podcast. No, don't you see? See what? It's dark and cold and... Oh, distinctly smelly. We must be aboard that other ship. The one on the scanner? Yes. Ben and David revisit Big Finishes, Sword of Orion.